Imperialism, like the prehistoric hunter, first killed the being spiritually and culturally before trying to eliminate it physically. The negation of the history and intellectual accomplishments of black Africans was cultural mental murder, which proceeded and paved the way for their genocide here and there in the world. I'm Jay from Push Black, and you're tuned in to a special episode of Black History Year. These were the words of Sheikh Antajo, a man whose ideas and work has influenced much of the black liberation work we see today and even here on Black History Year. Today we're digging in the Black History Year crates and bringing you the spiritual and cultural thinking that imperialism has continuously attempted to kill. So check out a few highlights from past episodes that reassure us that our culture is far from dead and it won't die if we keep reconnecting with our heritage and with our spiritual selves. So today, I actually think the majority of us believe that we are truly free, but I see examples of, you know, us existing on plantations all around us, multiple plantations at once for probably most of us. How do we identify the plantation? How do we know if we're on a plantation and, you know, what do we do to, to get free from that? That's a big question. It's a good one. I think one of the ways that we know that we're on a plantation is if we take stock of our wellness and we look to see, is this space nurturing my wellness? Is this a life-giving space for me? Do they care about my psychological, my spiritual, my social, and my physical wellness? And that could be a relationship, that could be a work situation, that could be a political group, it could be a spiritual group or space, a church, a congregation. The plantation is all about extraction. It's about reducing us to things and only valuing us based on our output. And so anytime I'm in a space where it just seems the value of my value as a Black woman is what can I produce? What can I offer? How can I heal? How can I add value to this situation as opposed to, is this place or situation affirming my divinity? That's how we start to know. The, the challenge, <laughs> though, at least the challenge for me, was I would have sworn that I was in those spaces before because I was so disconnected from my needs. I was so disconnected from my dignity. And so one of the things that I needed to do first was start to read stories of other Black people who were more connected to their dignity and their needs than I was. So I could say, oh, that's what it looks like. You know, so reading Black theologians who are writing 50 years ago, reading novels and seeing, oh, this is a Black woman who seems to know what she deserves a bit more than I do. And so I look at a plantation space as one that that makes it harder for me to connect with that. 
Now, getting off the plantation—that's <laughs> a whole nother thing. I think for you know, one of the things we talk a lot about in my e-course that I that I mentioned earlier is how do we identify what's keeping us here? The fear. What am I afraid of if I walk out of this relationship or this church situation or this job? So for me, when I, you know, I, I left my job at Duke, I was a professor at Duke Divinity School. And in 2019, I, I finally left. I was miserable the whole time. <laughs> but by 2016, I discovered I'm actually, I'm, I'm too sacred for this. I finally had that realization in 2016. I'm too sacred for this. But it took me another two or three years to get to the point where I felt like I could trust that abundance would catch me as I moved into the unknown. And that whole two to three year process was in me identifying my fears. And with each fear, trying to identify both spiritually and socially, how do I connect with a larger truth? Yes, it may be true that if I opt out of this capitalistic system, there will be some challenges in terms of how do I make a living and how do I keep my home? But the question is, is there a deeper truth? Is there a deeper truth that inspired my ancestors to leave the plantation, even though they had no idea what the future was? And that's the process. And it, it, it can be years, depending on the plantation. And one, one thing I learned is that, you know, there's no such thing as the single plantation escape. And it's been really helpful for me to read books like the Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead and other books like that to just show it's like leaving the plantations like chapter one, practically. <laughs> and then there's this whole new journey of figuring out how do I do life? I don't know the language. I don't know the economy. I don't know what my marketable skills are. I don't know what my spirituality, you know, just that. And every single time we come up against this, I don't know, we have an option to return to the plantation. And Harriet Tubman has been a a huge ancestor in my whole like connection to ancestors practice because I imagine she felt so many of those fears too. She decided to leave the plantation and she had no idea what was going to happen next. But all she knew was that she was too sacred to stay and that the North Star would lead her. And the North Star, I would say, is spirituality. Media is extremely powerful in telling us at least what we should prioritize. And it's interesting to hear about you describe that in, you know, in real time as you were seeing that. So, you know, as you were seeing these changes um, happening in society and the attacks on the movement through COINTELPRO and through potentially MKUltra, what were you involved in? Well, I was involved in some things that I really can't mention now. Sure, sure. But um, for the most part, we we were we were still, um, you know, running our survival programs. But of course, that last how would you say um, few years of the party, I was I was I didn't leave the party until 1980. But um, after Huey, uh, uh, Doctor Newton had returned and. Um, after Elaine Brown had, had uh, left, things got pretty chaotic. And that was because of the results of what the FBI had been doing for years. You know, one of the things they were able to do was now they were able to embody the Black Panther Party in one person. And that was Dr. Newton. 
So all they had to do then was just destroy that one person. And that's basically what happened. You know, Dr. Newton uh, in 1982 announced that, that the Black Panther Party had disbanded. But even before then, even a few years before, um, the Black Panther Party was just existing. It was, it was no longer operating politically. And, you know, that's why, I say, you know, it, it's nice to see the other legacy survives and you see all these groups, you know, wanting to emulate the Black Panther Party. But you can't call yourself the new Black Panther Party or the Black Panther Party militia or this, that, or the other without taking up the ideology of the Black Panther Party, which many of them don't even really know, you know. Um, we talk about revolutionary intercommunalism, the idea that, that um, you know, we're, we're all around the world, we're all communities that interact with each other. And if something, something happens in South Africa, that affects us here in America, you know? Something happens in Palestine, that affects us here and vice versa. So they don't have that type of, of ideology. Matter of fact, they've, they've kind of twisted what, what they've heard without looking at what was actually real. So you can't call yourself the Black Panther Party if, if you don't take on even the organizing tactics, okay? We ran the breakfast programs, we ran the free food programs. You know, we ran these programs for a reason. And those reasons were to serve the people, body and soul. And by doing that, we were able to form a connection with the community, okay? Because it's not, it's not, you know, the Panthers against the police or against, um, you know, racism. It's our community against the police and racism. You see what I'm saying? Absolutely. The Panthers work for the community. They're on behalf of the community and members right. of the but, community. But it was with that understanding that, you know, we were not a separate force. You know, Huey had criticized that in the, in the early 70s because there was a defection in the party. Um, and, and Huey basically was saying, look, you know, uh, you run the risk of becoming revolutionary cultists. That's why he had us take off the leather jacket, take off the beret, and just go into the community and work in the community so that we did not separate ourselves. You can't organize the community from the outside. And what we were trying to do was stand as one with the community. And we have too many of these other groups who keep saying, oh, we represent the community, but they don't have a base in the community. And that's what you have to create if you're going to sustain yourself on any level. And so when I start seeing an organization that does that, I don't care what their name is, I, I'll know who their inspiration is. So this stands out to me because it makes me think of the two cradle theory proposed by Sheikh Antadiep. Are you familiar with this theory? I'm actually not. So I'm excited okay. to hear about it. You may have heard this in some other form, but essentially it's this idea of 
how the European way of life was shaped and how the African way of life was shaped with Europeans being in a environment and climate where it was cold and treacherous and they had to look out for themselves and form this individual-based perspective where it's, okay, just me and then I'll share some of my family, but there wasn't these big communities. It was based on scarcity. I mean, if you're out trying to hunt or gather in the snowy climates, then you're going to be looking out for yourself first, as opposed to African societies where if you're right there on the equator, everything's in abundance. As long as you work together, everyone can have what they need. So it's interesting because his theory is that this sort of identifies how the environment of way back when shaped the systems that we exist in today. And so, you know, you mentioned this idea of scarcity in the neoclassical economic system versus the abundance that you mentioned in the cooperative economic system, that stands out to me as something that is distinctly European versus something that I see is rooted more of an African way of life. Um, What are your thoughts on that? So I have heard the theory and I do find it compelling, especially in the sense of early African peoples, also First Nations peoples have that same sense of abundance even though some of those First Nations were in very cold climates. So it's interesting that they were able to still have that notion of abundance and commonwealth. And even some of the Europeans have a little bit of a commonwealth notion. But I think definitely by the Industrial Revolution or just before the Industrial Revolution, as the whole capitalist system is developing with the Industrial Revolution, it also developed with enslavement. And pretty much the construction of the notion of race came out of enslavement and capitalism and the Industrial Revolution. So all those together gave us neoclassical economics and neoliberal economics that we're in now. I am very much convinced that these notions of collective well-being and collectivism are really much more connected, as I said, to African civilizations and First Nations here on the Western Hemisphere. I also look at Chancellor Williams. He talks about how cooperatives were nature's first way of survival that really nobody survived without cooperation. We know that by the time of the Enlightenment and the beginning of capitalism, Europeans kind of wrote that out of history. It's what individuals do that make you survive. But that's not really, if you you read history, if you understand how economics has worked through history, you see that we've always survived because we work together no matter who we are. And I think it's important for me and my work for trying to get especially urban Black communities but even rural Black communities, to embrace a different kind of economics, it's been important to connect back to those kinds of roots, to what are our cultural, spiritual roots, so then why are we willing to let our economics be separate from our cultural, spiritual notions of what we should be doing as a people and who we are as human beings. I've been trying to realign our economic values and structures to our humane spiritual values and structures. And that's where finding solidarity cooperative economics has helped me a lot. And that's partly why I got so excited about it, because it was able to bring that realignment back. Let's talk about how history is in that lane. I believe that the powers that be see us understanding our history as a thread and have gone to lengths to make it as muddied or opaque as possible. Would you would you agree with that? When we think about ancient Africa, we have to really start with with the first major society, which was Egypt. And that fight 
over Egypt is well over a century old. That fight goes back to the origins of the discipline of Egyptology. Um, So Egyptology was a, a discipline that emerged during the colonial period. I mean, the British, they had an empire. And so most of the early Egyptologists came from Britain or France or Germany, all colonial powers on the African continent. So when they, they began excavating and, uh, you know, one of the earliest questions or one of the first questions became, well, well who were the Egyptians? Where did they come from? Because you see these fabulous ruins. So they were, you know, one of the earliest and the most glorious of these ancient civilizations. So who were they and where did they come from? But that question was embedded within a larger discussion. So we have to think about the fact Again, I, I mentioned that, that this is during the colonial period. So the Europeans that are going colonizing all these different lands, and especially the African continent, in order to justify degrading human beings, taking their land, taking their resources, you have to see them or portray them in a way that diminishes their humanity. So there was already in place a philosophy that Black people were subhuman, if they were human at all. So if you you raise a discipline within that philosophical construct and you start asking questions, you're on the African continent, you see this, this civilization, well, the one thing, that, the first thing you're going to say, well, this can't be related to the people on this continent because our philosophical construct already tells us that they are incapable of critical thought, that they're not intelligent, barely human, so they could not be the people that constructed or anyway had any dealings with the civilization. The ancient Egyptians were African people. And this is an argument that continues to this day. It is becoming less of an argument with Egyptologists. And now the the argument has kind of rolled over into the definition of the modern versus the ancient Egyptian. But we're still having this denial of Africanity. So there is a insidious type of mentality that still sees blackness as something other, as something less than, as something degraded. Because I have seen Egyptian Egyptologists say ancient Egypt was in Africa, but it's not of Africa. So you have to really start critically analyzing. You also have to really look at how people use terminology, raise questions and and push back on how people are defining terms to either try to include or exclude based on their political orientation or what they're trying to achieve by making those inclusions or exclusions. So 
You mentioned previously reclaiming the narrative. Uh, speak more on that. Why is that important for Black artists, for us as a people? And in what ways is, is this exhibit or your work working towards that? Well, reclaiming the narrative, I think in this particular case, of course, is beyond important because we see the impact of others controlling that narrative about the Black Panther Party Reclaiming the narrative around that is, you know, so important because it teaches us what we're made of, where we come from, right? And what we're capable of. And then as artists, you know, I think that, you know, artists, especially Black artists, Brown artists, we teach, you know, with our work or we keep company with our work or we inspire movements with our work. I interned at Sotheby's in San Francisco. And I remember looking over the magazines and I loved all the catalogs, you know, for the exhibits, you know, but they had everything, everything, everything. They had Chinese snuff bottles and mid-century planes and they had everything from art to jewelry to 17th century Dutch masters. And so I remember one day asking the director, where is the Black art catalog? And she said to me, hmm, I don't know. Maybe look in the primitive mm. section. Wow. So I think that I've been happiest when I don't consider the art world when making decisions. And I get happier as time goes by. <laughs> I get happier as time goes by. I don't care to um, necessarily impress in that regard or succeed necessarily in that way. I love starting with the question, what is it that you want to do? And just doing that, you know, and kind of keeping the voices out of my head as much as possible, because I know they're there. I know they're 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 always there. But I, I'm interested in, in having those conversations amongst my community, my family, my people. That's why I always say that art keeps company, mm. you know, is because I know that firsthand. You know, it lifts the spirit. It's the same as, you know, putting on your headphones when you're on a subway or when you're in a place where you, you know you're not welcome. You know what I mean? And you can hear your music in your head. You're not alone. So it keeps company. And I, you know, I do think that's important. Push Black is nonprofit. We're nonpartisan. We're not repping anybody but Black people. So can we achieve Black liberation through America's two-party system? I don't know if liberation is a, a function of any political system per se. I think it's, it's, it's all of the things, right? I think it's the narrative piece, right? The stories that we tell about ourselves, the stories that we tell about the world that we want to live in. It's absolutely the political piece. I think it's vital and essential and central to it, but it doesn't make up the whole change that we need in order to see liberation. I think it's an economic organizing opportunity as well. America's way too big to only have two political parties. So like just, just dispense with that period right now. Our neighbors to the North, right? In Canada, 
much smaller country, right? There are more people who live in California than who live in the entire country of Canada. And they have a multiple party system. They have a parliamentary system of government where there's an opportunity for minority voices to be represented at every level of government. The two-party system is insufficient just for the day-to-day operation and maintenance of a democracy of this size. So it absolutely is insufficient for the kind of liberation that we are talking about for Black folks. I don't think that a passive approach is what gets us to something that approaches or looks like justice or liberation. Like we ain't just going to strike our way towards building something that works for us. So my example that um, I've been using lately with some of our younger organizers is you got roommates and it's four of y'all in the in the in this like cute condo or whatever. And two of your roommates are disgusting. One of them is all right, and you're the person that is like cleaning all the time, right? And then you just say, you know what? I'm done. I withdraw my labor. I don't like how things have been going. So I quit. I'm not cleaning anymore. They're all right with the filth, <laughs> right? So withdrawing and saying, I, I quit. I abstain is not going to get you the outcome that you want to see. So you need to at first link up with your roommate who's all right, right? <laughs> they ain't the best, but they are right. And that's your first ally. That's your first comrade. That's your first recruit. And then thinking about what are the ways that we either neutralize the other two or bring or bring them along and bring them on board. I don't again, I don't think that a passive approach is going to bring about the change that we want to seek. And so I'm actively looking for opportunities to pick up additional tools, to pick up additional co-conspirators, to pick up resources, to organize my people and organize our resources because we have a vision for a system that works for us that isn't extractive and takes and takes and takes and doesn't reinvest into us as people, into our families, into our businesses, into the kind of communities that we want to live in. So yes, we absolutely encourage people while we are organizing, while we are in these streets, we are absolutely registering people to vote and encouraging them to use their vote as as their voice and as a tool. I'm not taking nothing off the table in my quest for liberation, and that includes voting. Often, you know, we're expected to, and I, I would say trained to, work within the realms of the system that was constructed by others that aren't in our community. They give us these sort of guidelines and rules and say, okay, we can try to do something, but it has to meet this criteria. But what you seem to be talking about is more visionary and sort of breaking outside of that box. Um, So how do we as a people create that? And is it necessary that we have a shared vision or could it be individual? I mean, I'll say a few things on this. One is, I don't think we have to have a shared vision. And I think we've actually spent sometimes years, decades (laughs) um, trying to fight for like a single shared vision. I think what's true in nature is that biodiversity is what survives. So when you look at a healthy forest or healthy jungle, 
it's not one type of plant or one type of tree growing in every direction. It's a million different kinds of trees and a million different kinds of plants and mushrooms and all these other things and birds and all kinds of stuff that is relying on each other, that's in right relationship to each other. I long for that for us as Black people, for us to have many, many different opinions, many different ways of being and moving forward that are outside of any small stereotypes we've been given for ourselves, and that we celebrate all those different ways that we are thinking and being, but that we have a common sense on the other side of it that we all fight for our liberation. None of us will sell ourselves, right? Sell each other to those who wish to cause harm for us. And that feels important to me. In terms of the how, I think the work of Octavia Butler and Nettie Okorafor, Tanana Reeve-Dew and other Black futurists is part of the how, which is we have to literally write ourselves in, right? We have to write ourselves in. We have to come up with visions for ourselves that are more compelling than staying in the compromises of oppression that are currently asked of us. And I think when we don't have those visions, then it becomes very hard for people to actually fight for what we need, right? We fight and we end up compromising ourselves again and again. And I'm really interested in what's beyond the compromise. What does it look like for us to live as an uncompromised people? So I'm trying to imagine that all the time. And I write about that all the time. And it looks like a lot of healing. It looks like a lot of play. It looks like a lot of pleasure. It looks like a lot of harnessing our power. Speaking of just writing about the future and Black people in the future, you know, a lot of speculative fiction is pretty dystopian. You know, it's a vision of the future that if we don't solve today's problems, then something terrible is going to happen. Are these types of visions for the future useful? And if so, how or if not, how? I always say, I think it is useful to have these dystopian texts um, as a warning, right? To give us a chance to play out what is likely to happen and how would we survive in those circumstances? So, you know, the parable of the sower and the parable of the talents is about an extremely dystopian vision of what happens in the US. And Octavia wrote that text in the nineties. And the slogan, the campaign slogan of the president who runs for office in those books was make America great again, right? So, you know, she always said that she was like, I wasn't a prophet. I just was paying attention to the conditions around me and what could happen. So in that way, I think it's always really important to, to engage. Like right now, we're living in a dystopian and apocalyptic time. We're living in a plague. We're living in economic crises. We're living in racial crises. Writing utopian things is not going to disappear our need to survive these conditions, right? So I think that helps. But something I always point out to people is that in real life, dystopias and utopias don't come separately. Usually, dystopias are created by some people living in a utopia. <laughs> so even right now, there are super, super, super beyond imagination wealthy people who have benefited greatly from us having this massive pandemic something that has been the worst experience of many of our lives has been a great financial benefit to others. They are living in a utopia. They have all their needs met. Everything they want is delivered to them. A good friend of mine pointed out that the pandemic has basically been rich people ordering things that poor people delivered to them. And that's how we've moved through it. Those kind of situations help me understand that instead of pulling apart utopia and dystopia, I always wanna pay attention to 
Who in the story is serving? Who is enslaved? Who has agency? Who gets to choose what work they do? Who gets to choose how their children are cared for? And how do we make sure that those, those basic, basic, basic human rights are spread amongst as many people as possible? That's what we need to be writing and practicing if that's what we want to see come into existence in real life. You know, one of the arguments I often hear about why our community should reject the religion of the oppressors is because of this oppression aspect. It was handed down through slavery, despite the fact that the original version was ours. But it seems that you're also suggesting that even deeper than that, because of the way that these concepts have been flipped around, it's given us a view of the world, a mindset of uh, toward the world and toward each other, toward nature, that is different than what we originally practiced and what helped us build these great civilizations. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And well, let me just share this quote with you by uh, Henry Berry Esquire, a member of the Virginia House of, of delegates speaking to other politicians in January 1835. He said, and this is a direct quote, sir, speaking to other politicians in Virginia, other politicians who were enslavers and owned our ancestors. So he said to them, sir, we have so far as possible closed every avenue through which light may enter the slave's mind. If we could extinguish their capacity to see the light then they would be on the level of the beasts of the field and our work would be complete and we would be safe. So if you just take that one statement and unpack it in 1835, Christian European politicians and enslavers in the Commonwealth of Virginia said that they've done everything within their power to keep light, which is a metaphor for knowledge, from entering the minds of the enslaved Africans. They said if we could extinguish our ancestors' capacity to see the light, then we would function on the level of the beasts of the field and their work would be complete and they would be safe. So if we fast forward to 2020, we have to ask ourselves, is there a segment of the population of the United States of America who acts like the beasts of the field? who goes around and calling each other dog, what's up my dog, who calls their women female dogs, who calls their children little bow wow. There's no such thing as coincidence. Everything happens for a reason. And when you begin to unpack the historical reasons why we think, speak, and act the way that we do, you can come to a original cause. And once you look at that original cause, then you have to ask yourself, has that original cause helped me or hurt me? And if it's hurt you, if it's hurt your children, your grandchildren, your great grandchildren, then you have an obligation and a responsibility to change that cause and define an original cause that will help you, that will help your children, your grandchildren and all future generations. So that knowledge exists. So it means that in order to undo what Henry Berry and his colleagues set in motion, then we have to do what was forbidden for our ancestors to do. We have to read. We have to cultivate a love affair with reading, a love affair with books, a love affair with history. We have to read those books that our oppressors never wanted us to read so that we can discover who we were before our world was turned upside down. How we created the oldest and greatest civilization known to mankind, how we conceived of a relationship with God, all of that information is still accessible to any soul who is willing to invest his or her time 
in freeing your mind. So once you become aware of those things, then you now have the tools in order to make something out of nothing, cultivate a relationship with divinity, cultivate a relationship with your ancestors, which will allow you to create anything that your heart desires. Just like that, we're at the end of this episode of Black History Year. This podcast is produced by Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit black media company. At Push Black, we agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, a people without knowledge of their past, history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. And I'm guessing you probably feel that's important too. I mean, here you are at the end of a podcast about black history. You matter. Your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value this work. Push Black exists because we saw we had to take matters into our own hands. And you make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most people give about five or 10 bucks a month, but everything makes a difference. Thanks for supporting the work. The Black History Year production team includes Tarek Alani, Leslie Taylor Grover, Brooke Brown, Siobhan Chapman, Albany Jones, Brianna Lambach, Garciella Melotesi, Zane Murdoch, Tasha Taylor, and Darren Wallace. Producing the podcast, we have Sydney Smith, and Sasha Kai Parker, who also edits the show. And Black History Year's executive producer is Julian Walker. And I'm Jay from Push Black. Peace.